What a great reminder for us this afternoon. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into the message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have access to it, that we can learn more about who you are, to learn about your your son and the gospel salvation that's found in him alone, and of your spirit that indwells those who repent and believe in you and sanctifies those who hears from your word. And so I pray that your spirit would do that now as we listen to what it is that you have to teach us. Um, And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We will be in Esther chapter 1 still, and we'll finish off the chapter this afternoon. Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 22. says there, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bidzda, Harbana, Bigda, Abigtha, Sethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? In the presence of the king and the princess, Memukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of media, Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Titled this sermon, The Showstopper. The Showstopper, and we'll see why. All of life we all know this, is about making decisions. All of life is about making decisions. From what time should I go to sleep? Those who stay up late playing video games, watching Netflix. To what time should I wake up? To what should I eat today? What should I wear today? And even when you walked in, where should I sit? Where should I sit? These decisions may seem small and insignificant, but they can 
and may have far-reaching consequences. The person who you're sitting next to may be struggling with anger or anxiety or depression. They may be an unbeliever. And maybe you have a conversation with them. They start sharing with you about their life. You start sharing with them about your life and how Christ is your Lord and Savior. It leads to the gospel being proclaimed. God's Spirit is actively at work in their hearts. And they're born again to new life in Christ. And that's just because you chose to sit where you chose to sit. That began out of a simple choice to sit in this seat. We usually place more weight upon decisions that deal with huge amounts of money, a house purchase or a car purchase, or deal with life and death situations. What should I do with my uh, physically hurting dad or uncle? Or the longevity of consequences of the decision as, as marriage. It's for a lifetime. But we see that even small decisions, small decisions can have a big impact that changes everything. It changes everything. We also think of who to vote for recently, what church to attend and become a member of. And if I could just get a little deeper, should I go to that website? Should I not go to that website? Should I post what's on my mind onto Facebook or Instagram? Should I not post what's on my mind on Facebook or Instagram? And nowadays, in our culture and society, should we attend this wedding? Should we attend this event or that event? Will it show support and celebrate it? To some degree, our choices speak to who we are. People are able to learn something about you by your decisions. What are people able to learn based on our decisions? Are people able to see that we put others before ourselves? Are people able to see that we're governed by the word of God? That we think about things differently, we see things differently, we react differently? That we have an eternal perspective and live by this eternity principle? That God is our ultimate authority, ruler, and king? Are people able to tell that we're Christians based upon our choices and decisions? In this section of Esther, we see that a small decision can have significant and far-reaching consequences that aren't often fully visible until later on. We're going to continue to learn more about King Ahasuerus and how even seemingly bad choices and decisions are used by our God of providence for his purposes. So first, in verses 10 through 10, 10 through 11, we'll see the king's unashamed request. The king's unashamed request. If you look there in verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizda, Harbana, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. That's the king's unashamed request. In verse 5, we read that the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. 
for all the people present at the citadel in Susa from the greatest to the least. If you look up to verse 9, we read that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And now, verse 10, we read, on the seventh day, on the seventh day, this is the seventh day, the last day of the banquet for all the people and for all the women. And after many days, you can imagine of drinking, they're under the influence of wine, the king commanded these seven named eunuchs, the number seven was sacred among the Persians, and they're named to verify the events. He commanded these seven named eunuchs who served in his presence to go get the queen, to go get Queen Vashti. And before we move on, what's the significance of eunuchs? Why are they significant to the story? Why bring them up? Eunuchs had access to and were charged with care of the royal harem. We see this in chapter 2, verse 3. says there, uh, To the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Also in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. The also, the end of verse 10 says, served in the presence of the king, meaning they were allowed to be face to face with him. They didn't need to be summoned in order to come into his presence. Beyond that, because of their physical reproductive situation, they were no threat to the women and the concubines of the harem. I could say more about this in in more detail, but I'll encourage those parents with younger kids to use this as an opportunity to shepherd and disciple uh, in an age-appropriate way to instruct on what these terms mean and why they're found even in the Word of God that we can use these words and understand these words, such as eunuch and harem and concubine and, and virgin, as we'll learn more about next week and what they actually did. And so I encourage you to do that. So eunuchs served in the presence of the king and were overseeing the harem. Also, this is important, also eunuchs are known to guide people either to prosperity or to destruction. For the Jewish people, eunuchs actually enable them to succeed, and whenever a eunuch appears for anybody else, it's just bad news. It's destruction, death. And so eunuchs appear at very strategic moments. They appear at very strategic moments. Verse 11, these seven eunuchs are commanded to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Why? It says, in order to display her beauty to the people and princes, for she was beautiful. In the midst of this parade of sin and drunkenness, and at the high point of this banquet, when Ahasuerus is intoxicated, we see here that he likes to drink, he's a, he's a drunk, he demands for his queen to be brought to him. We see here that he likes to be in control and he's giving commands and the orders for her to be brought to him. We also see that he's a womanizer. He wants to use her for his pleasure and purposes to display her beauty to the people for she was beautiful. And you might think, what's the big deal with that? What does the king order her to do? To be brought to him, to be brought before him with her royal what does it say? Crown, verse 11. Why is that so bad? 
the Jewish Midrash and rabbinic interpreters over the years have suggested that it also, and this is also my interpretation of it, that Ahasuerus' command was to have her brought to him only, only in her royal crown. This is the king's unashamed request. Ahasuerus wants to present Queen Vashti as his property. We see this uh, with her crown being a royal crown. Notice also verse 2, his royal throne. Verse 4, his royal glory. Verse 7, his royal wine. Verse 9, in the palace, which literally translated is royal house. They are all describing his royal possessions. So when he says to bring her in her royal crown, he's saying that her significance relates to him and that she belongs to him to do whatever he wants her to do. Basically, she is his prize and she wants, he wants to display her beauty for all to see on this last day of the banquet. He's saying, I have it all and I've saved the best for last. Bring her in her royal crown. What is Queen Vashti going to do? We have the king's unashamed request. Secondly, we'll see the queen's reasonable refusal. First part of verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. The queen refuses to go, and it's reasonable and understandable why. But notice there, her reason and motive are not recorded. There have been different views proposed as to why the queen would say no. Some say that she was pregnant at the time, so she didn't want to go out before the men. Some suggest that her going out in her royal crown would would cause the men to to go after her with uncontrollable lust. And some imply that she didn't want to go before them in just her royal crown. All very good explanations. Regardless, no woman would want to be commanded to be flaunted and paraded and used as entertainment in front of a group of intoxicated people for their entertainment and to her shame. Queen Vashti says no. She probably doesn't realize at that moment, even though she knew there would be consequences, that her decision would change her life forever. And the lives of the Jews forever. The parting comes to a halt because King Ahasuerus' prestige and power show has been challenged. What he wanted to display as his showstopper, his finale, saving the best for last, instead became his showstopper. Now we will see the king's uncontrollable reaction. Second half of verse 12. The king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. That's self-explanatory. He didn't get what he wanted. He got really mad. But it reveals something about the king. His power, control, authority, Honor is threatened, yet he doesn't know what to do except react and display his hurt ego and his lack of control. You would think a king of his prestige and power would know what to do. But instead, we see next, verses 13 through 18, the prince's unreasonable counsel. The prince's unreasonable counsel. The king is drinking. He's enjoying himself. He commands for his queen to be brought to him to display her beauty. She refuses to go. He throws a temper tantrum because he didn't get what he wanted, and now he doesn't know what to do. His big ego and hunger for power and honor 
serves to show his weaknesses, his inability to make decisions. He's easily moved and manipulated. He's quickly angered and easily consoled. We see the king's weaknesses here. And so he turns to the wise men. He's intoxicated and he turns to these wise men who understood the times for counsel. Remember, he likes to to drink and have control. And ironically, I said last week, he like he makes his best decisions while drinking when he's not in control. These wise men were his royal advisors who were thoroughly acquainted with Persian laws and customs. Surely they would know what to do, what's best to do. In other words, they were experts in matters of law and justice. In verse 14, the seven princes of Persia media are named. Again, number seven being sacred among the Persians and their names being given to verify the events. These men had special access before the king and held a high position within the kingdom. It says they had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. They are closely associated with the king. Let's read what happens next. Look at verses 15 and 16. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? In the presence of the king and the princess, Memukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Memukin is one of the seven princes, and he speaks on their behalf. And he's exaggerating greatly. He's exaggerating what happened. What was a king-queen internal conflict is now turned into an empire-wide affair. How quickly the use of the tongue can cause a fire to spread. Apparently, Queen Vashti's refusal not only uh, affected the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who were in all the provinces. What a way to manipulate the king. What was the danger? Verses 17 and 18, if you look there. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. The real threat wasn't the women. The real threat wasn't the women, but it was the threat to the power-controlling pride of the men. They were terrified that the queen's just-say-no policy would spread into every home in the empire. In fact, that it would begin immediately. Notice what it says in the beginning of verse 18. This day. It's going to start this day if you don't do anything about it. Memukin is saying to the king, if you don't do anything about it right now, every woman in your empire will hear about it and they will no longer listen to their husbands and there will be contempt and anger towards them. This is ironic and a little humorous as we'll see. This was the prince's unreasonable counsel. In verses 19 through 22, we see the king's unalterable edict. Verses 19 to 22, it says, If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus 
and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to his script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in language of his own people. When it's not the will of the king, it's the pleasure of the king that determines what happens. If you look at verse 19, it says, if it pleases the king. In verse 21, this word pleased the king, and the king did. We learn here a little about Persia and media laws. They cannot be broken. They cannot be changed. They are unalterable. Verse 19 says they cannot be repealed. And take note of this because the irrevocable nature of Persian law will play a very important role in the story of Esther. For Ahasuerus, this edict is a reflection of his own power, his own control. His control is final. And we see a statement in Esther chapter 8, verse 8, regarding the unchangeability of Persian laws. It says there, Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. We also see this in Daniel chapter 6. And we're familiar with Daniel chapter 6. Verse 8 says, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. There, Ahasuerus' father, Darius I, is manipulated by his administrators to issue this irrevocable decree forbidding prayer, which was really a ploy intended to trap Daniel. And we read in chapter 6 of Daniel, verse 12, Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. A couple of verses later in verses 14 and 15 in Daniel 6, after Daniel was found to be praying to God, it says, Then, as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So this royal edict is not a small thing. It's not a small thing. There's no going back. It's final. And Memukin wants Vashti notice in verse 19. It's no longer Queen Vashti. She's already stripped of her royal title to be banned from the king's presence forever and for the king to give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And ironically, we see that Vashti is given permission to do exactly what she wants to do, to stay away from the king. In verse 20, Memukin continues to, to stroke the ego of the king. He makes reference to the king's far-reaching power and greatness and says to him, when the edict is heard through all your kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands. See what kind of authority you have, king? You just have to issue an edict. And Ahasuerus likes to be in control, so he makes an edict. 
verse 21. This word pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memucan proposed. I mentioned earlier that we're going to learn more about King Ahasuerus and how even seemingly bad decisions are used by our God of providence. You have the king here intoxicated, making bad choices. But these bad choices for God's purposes are actually good choices because you get Vashti out, which opens the door for another queen to come in. He makes his best decisions drunk. He tries to show that he has control. He shows that he's a womanizer. He shows that he's easily moved and manipulated. But again, what he actually shows are his weaknesses, his inability to exercise his power and authority. And the irony is clear. They want to stop women from imitating Vashti and her refusal to obey the king. So an edict has to be proclaimed so that there will be widespread honor for husbands everywhere, that every man should be the ruler over his household. But what about the king? What about the king? Considering his character and the campaign of against Greece in the background where he would want his men to obey his commands as they went to war, in his own palace he could not even get his own wife to obey his command. He wants her to honor him. And now he doesn't even have a queen to honor him. It's also ironic that they didn't want this news to get out. They didn't want this news to get out of Vashi saying no. Verse 17, you don't want the queen's conduct to become known or else all women will look with contempt on their husbands. Yet, an empire-wide edict, verse 20, is sent out to broadcast it. And we see this in verse 22. Here we learn about this advance for this advanced postal system that the Persians used. It was kind of like an ancient Pony Express system where they relayed the king's edict to all the people in a timely manner. And again, Herodotus, a Greek historian who grew up in the Persian Empire, notes, he says, quote, Nothing mortal travels so fast as these Persian messengers. The entire plan is a Persian invention, and this is the method of it. Along the whole line of road, there are men stationed with horses, in number equal to the number of days which the journey takes, allowing a man and horse to each day. And these men will not be hindered from accomplishing at their best speed the distance which they have to go, either by snow or rain or heat, or by the darkness of night. The first rider delivers his dispatch to the second, second passes on to the third, and so it is borne from hand to hand along the whole line. We also see this in Esther chapter 8, verse 10, where it refers to letters being sent by couriers on horses. And so this marvelous communication system is used throughout this story. We learn of how the message is distributed, but we also learn about the diverse and developed culture of the Persians. They were able to send letters to each province. How many are there? 127, according to its script and to every people according to their own languages. That's pretty remarkable. Verse 22 ends with a purpose. Why? That every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. That's, that's a little overboard. This is to make clear that husbands are to be the master in their own homes and on top of that, that husbands, the husband's language is to be the primary language of the home. It's saying that women are to have essentially no voice, no language of their own. 
They are to honor their husbands because if they don't, be reminded of what happened to Queen Vashti. So what did happen to Queen Vashti? From verse 19, we know that she was no longer to come into the presence of the king and that her position will be given and replaced by someone else more worthy than her. But that's really all that we know. Her story is put on pause and left behind. But her story is significant because it sets off a providential chain of events that God is actively and invisibly working behind the scenes and prepares the way for what is to come. Now, I think this is, will, this will be helpful in seeing us, seeing how to study and interpret scripture. Queen Vashti's story has been used and abused to promote the victimization of women in different women's groups. It has been used to rally for women's rights and even the LGBTQIA whatever else movement. Queen Vashti and Esther have been used as good examples of women who defy men and manipulate men to get what they want. They see that as admirable and powerful and something that all women should strive for. Yet this goes against God's created order and purpose for men and women. Men and women absolutely being equal in personhood, in dignity, in value, created in God's image, precious and wonderfully made, but their roles are different. This goes all the way back to the fall, where in Genesis 3.16, it says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This means that because of sin and the curse, the man and the woman will face struggles in their own relationship. Sin turned their harmonious system of God-ordained roles into unpleasant battles of self-will. Therefore, as lifelong companions, husbands and wives will need God's help. The woman's desire will be to lord it over her husband, to take his role, but the husband will rule by divine design. And so Queen Vashti and Esther have been used by some to come up with the new hermeneutic, which is a way of applying principles of interpretation. For example, reading this story and applying a liberation liberation interpretation onto it, or a sexism-feminism interpretation onto it, or a woman's empowerment interpretation onto it. And this misses the point of the story and the author's intent. It takes Queen Vashti and Esther completely out of their context. This is to place upon the story something that was not the author's intended meaning or the original audience's understanding. This is to impose one's own experiences, upbringing, culture, background, relationships into and onto and over the text where you start to interpret scripture based upon the lens of your own life. What does this mean to me? Instead of interpreting scripture based upon the author's intention through the historical and grammatical context and applying the meaning and significance of that to your life, the danger there is to make yourself the authority of scripture instead of scripture being your authority, where you dictate what scripture says and means instead of allowing scripture to dictate what it says and means. Ultimately, you use scripture for your own purposes. And so it's important as we look to scripture, how we're studying it, how we're observing it, how are we keeping it in the context that it's in. 
Now to kind of bring it back, we have seen the king's unashamed request, the queen's reasonable refusal to say no, the king's uncontrollable reaction, the the prince's unreasonable counsel, which resulted in the king's unalterable edict. We see that a small decision can have significant and far-reaching consequences that aren't often fully visible until later on. And that's exactly how we're left hanging, wondering what is going to happen as a result of this. This section is still part of the setup. God is establishing all the preparation for his rescue of his people from behind the scenes. Like Vashti, you and I today unintentionally make decisions that have long-reaching consequences far beyond what we could have foreseen. Through them, God is moving all of history forward to accomplish all that must happen before his son Jesus Christ returns. That tells us that God is a part of everything that is happening. God is a part of everything that is happening. To subtract or take God out of the equation of life is to add on chaos and confusion and hopelessness. Ahasuerus was a king who had great power and wealth, yet he didn't know how to rightly exercise it. He desired to be served rather than to serve. He used it as a means to pridefully exalt himself and to seek honor for himself as if he was God. So when his honor was dishonored and he was challenged and threatened, his insecurities and lack of control became evident. He became very angry and issued a law that demanded for honor to be given. But Jesus Christ, in contrast, being truly God and truly man, the Son of God and Son of Man, the King of Kings, also had great power and wealth. But he knows how to rightly exercise it. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He used it as a means to humble himself instead of seeking honor for himself as God. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Although Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We all have dishonored our Lord and King. We all fall short of his perfect glory. Yet, he's not a tyrant over us. He does not turn us away. He calls us to come to him, to draw near to him. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, it's clear. He has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His substitutionary death on behalf of sinners who repent and believe in him provides atonement for sins and forgiveness. It completely takes away God's righteous wrath and condemnation that is rightly due to sinners. The bad news is that you have no hope or ability of saving yourself from your sins. The good news is that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life that gives you hope of being saved from your sins and from the wrath of God. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. He laid down his life and died in your place and was raised from the grave, victorious over sin and death, satisfying God's wrath fully and completely, paying for your sins on the cross. If you repent and believe by faith, trusting in him alone for salvation, you will be saved. That's the Jesus we worship. He is Lord. King Ahasuerus exalted himself and sought honor for himself. Christ humbly served by emptying himself to the point of death on the cross. And God exalted him. God exalted him. And one day, all will confess, whether in heaven or hell, that Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This all began with the queen's decision to say no. Whether that was right or wrong, this reveals that even minor decisions have the potential for initiating events that not only have personal, but also worldwide consequences. Fortunately, those consequences were under the watchful care of our God. He's using those outcomes to achieve his purposes for the good of his people. So don't allow past decisions to cripple you, to cause you despair. If it involved sin and there was repentance, thank God for his forgiving grace that Christ has paid for that sin and turn it into praise. Don't look down in shame. Don't look inward and focus on yourself. Look up to Christ. When sorrows like sea billows roll, 
whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We are not those who grieve without hope. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast for our Savior loves us so. He will hold us fast. If you're here and you're dealing with regret over past decisions and are wanting to go back and change things, let me ask you, is God not able to even use those decisions and those outcomes? Is that outside of God's divine providence? Did God make a mistake? Is God unaware? Is God not working and overruling all things? All your decisions, whether right or wrong, good or bad, wise or foolish, hurtful or helpful, cannot, absolutely cannot mess up God's perfect plan. Why? Because we are a part of his perfect plan. Whatever our God ordains is right. This should be really a comforting truth, a relieving truth, a freeing truth. And what makes this particular section all the more amazing is that unbelievers are essential to divine providence. That should give us great peace and hope. We're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in the midst of unbelievers making decisions for an entire nation. The decisions here are being made by unbelievers. That is, by those who have no real understanding or interest in who God is and how he's controlling the destiny of a still-to-be-mentioned people in the story of Esther, the Jews. But God is behind it all. He's working everything out. And everything at every moment from eternity past to eternity future down to the details and circumstances of your lives is exactly how it should be. Exactly how it should be. Unbelievers cannot mess that up. National leaders cannot mess that up. Physical pain does not mess that up. Nothing is outside of God's ultimate sovereign control. And he is providentially working all of it out for his glory and for your good. Let that encourage you. As King Ahasuerus' show comes to a stop, God's active, invisible, behind-the-scenes show is just starting. And it will become more and more visible in the next chapter. So let me encourage you. All of life is about making decisions. Are we perfect? We're not. Do we sin? We do. But God uses all of that, all of that, for his glory and for our good. Don't beat yourself up. Don't let it prevent you from worshiping him. Let it point you to him 
Let it point you to Christ and that you would see what he did for you on the cross. The forgiveness of sins, the love that was demonstrated by the Father in giving up his one and only Son. Would his grace, would his mercy cause your broken, hurting hearts from past decisions or past outcomes, however you look at it, to be a source of praise for his perfect grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you how it reveals your glory to us. How it should cause us to to worship you more, to see you more clearly, to exalt you alone. Father, thank you for the reminder that you're in control. That nothing is outside of your perfect wisdom and your perfect knowledge and your perfect will. And everything that's happening is exactly according to your plan. Nothing is off, but everything is right. Would we take comfort in coming to you because you know all things and turn every circumstance, everything in our lives back to you in praise for calling us to yourself and allowing us to be a part of your perfect plan and even to use the lives of those who aren't in Christ. How amazing is your grace, how amazing is your power, how amazing and great you are. I pray that you would be glorified in all that's been taught, all that's been said, all that's been sung. To your glory alone we pray. Amen.